Okay, so uh, welcome everyone. And uh, uh, we can carry on where we left off last time, which I think is back in April <laughs> or something. Yeah. So every six months you get a new installment of this very long suit. Uh, it would have been nice if it was a bit more frequent, but this is the way it goes. Uh, I just did the, uh, the sutta at the monastery over the rains retreat, uh, and uh, we did uh, nine, no, ten sessions or something like that, and that was only a small part of the sutta. Uh, so uh, this sutta is really can be expanded out to the whole Buddhist path, uh, and that is because it is the what is often called the uh, Pubba Sikka. Pubba Sikka means like gradual training. Sikka is training in Pali. Pubba is like prior, so it's like training with the prior, in other words, like sequential or, or something like that. So it's like the gradual training in Pali. Yeah. And because of that, it really contains all the elements uh, of the Buddhist teachings, the whole path from the beginning, from the moment you hear the word of the Buddha until you become enlightened. Uh. So one of the nice things about that is that you can sort of see where you are at, yeah, where your meditation is at, uh, yeah, and, uh, and get some idea what it is that you have to do, because it sets out this whole beautiful path, uh, every aspect of it. Uh. And of course, as we kind of move forward on this path, we get into meditation or whatever, we're still working on the early aspects at the same time. Uh. So this whole path becomes like integrated. Uh, the more advanced you are on this path, uh, the more all the factors come together in your practice. Uh, and so this is very uh, kind of very inspiring when you see this. Yeah? This is how you can recognize someone who's practicing well, doing the right thing. Yeah? But this particular sutta, just to remind you, is anyone who has no idea about this particular sutta, who's here for the first time, kind of thing? Yeah, okay, okay, welcome, good. <laughs> so you're coming into the middle of a particular discourse, the Buddha, don't worry, it's fine, you don't have to... He, whether you missed out the early part is actually quite irrelevant. You will still get what's going on there. But just to give you a little bit of background, uh, this is the second discourse uh, in what is known as the long discourses of the Buddha, the Diga Nikaya. Diga in Pali means long. Nikaya means collection. A long collection of discourses. Uh, second discourse. Uh, and um, uh, it is a very well-known discourse, one of the longest discourses that we find among the suttas, the word of the Buddha. And one of the nice things about this discourse uh, is that it, um, the, uh, the narrative around it uh, is about this king in ancient India called Ajatasattu. Ajatasattu means the unborn enemy. Uh, it's an interesting name, isn't it? Uh, his name was literally the unborn enemy. Uh, it's kind of a scary name. <laughs> I don't know if it was the father who gave him that name, or that became his later kind of appellation or whatever. I'm not sure. It's a bit strange for the parents to give that name to a son, unborn enemy. But anyway, um, uh, and he was very—he was torn with remorse because he had killed his own father. So he literally was the unborn enemy. So quite literally, he quite likely he got that appellation later on because of his conduct afterwards, Ajata Sattu. Um, and he was torn with remorse, and he decides, he asks his ministers, uh, who can I see in the world? Who are the Brahmins or the spiritual practitioners uh, who might be able to ease my conscience? Uh, because I feel really, I can't really sleep properly, all of these kind of things. When you do something really bad in the world, it really destroys your mental tranquility. Uh, and this straight away shows you the importance of virtue and kindness and morality on the Buddhist path. It allows you some degree of peace etc., etc. So uh, 
And then uh, they, we have this discussion between the various ministers, and then the, the last minister says, well, go and see the Buddha. Yeah, because the Buddha is a, he's a cool, cool guy, cool, in, like in the higher sense of cool, he's really, really cool. Uh, as a cool is actually a word for someone who is enlightened, yeah? so that's why I'm using that word, not just to kind of sound contemporary or whatever. Uh, um, Siti Bhutto means become cool. Uh, and so he decides to go and see the Buddha, and then there's a long conversation about the doctrines of the various Brahmins and ascetics and spiritual teachers in ancient India, and the sh we see the shortcomings of those teachings. Uh, and then the king asks the Buddha, can you teach me about the fruits of the spiritual life? Yeah, the results. What is the purpose of the spiritual life? So this sutta is really about the fruits of the spiritual life. That's very interesting, right? I mean, it's really, really. This is absolutely what this is about. That's why every one of us is here, because of the fruits of the spiritual life. This coming down to really the critical essence of what this path is about. And this is why it's so interesting. But instead of just giving us the fruits and kind of listing the fruits, we'll come to those later on. Uh, the Buddha, as part of ex his explanation, uh, he gives this long, uh, uh, the whole course of practice that leads up to those fruits and those results on the path. Uh. And uh, so far, in the first three sessions, we have looked a little bit at uh, you know, how a Buddha arises in the world, how a Buddha comes to be, and then you get people listening to that teaching, uh, then they decide to go forth to become a monastic. Uh, and then once they have gone forth, you can see here this whole section, yeah, um, about, uh, and this kind of gives the, um, this whole section gives the, um, the path in brief, basically, yeah. Once they have gone forth, uh, you are restrained by the monastic code, this is like morality, you conduct themselves well, seeking alms in a suitable place, uh, good conduct, uh, hanging out in the right places, uh, seeing danger in the slightest fault, in other words, being scrupulous in your morality, uh, keeping the rules you have undertaken, acting skillfully by body and speech. This whole, all of this is about morality, really. Purified in livelihood. Uh, it means that you just walk for alms uh, and you don't do all this dodgy stuff. Uh, uh, and then you are accomplished in ethical conduct. Then you have guarding the doors of the senses, uh, having mindfulness and situational awareness, and they are content. And this is the beginning of this gradual training. Uh, and I'm going to look now at each of these sections, each of these things, uh, in much greater detail. Uh. So um, let us see uh, what we can do. Um, I think we better keep the full screen, otherwise we get all this kind of disturbing stuff in the background. Uh, okay, all right, we'll just leave it like that. Uh, I don't like so much text on the screen. I, I find it kind of disturbing. I like like 
one word at the most on the screen. That's kind of my ideal. Uh, but anyway, because uh, we're going slowly, we don't want to see too many words. Uh. So, um, okay. So now we come to the uh, section on ethical conduct, and we're going to look at ethics in a little bit of not too much detail, because we talked about ethics a lot uh, previously, uh, but we're going to have a look at a little bit of detail of the idea of ethics. Uh. In other words, morality. In other words, uh, uh, many, many aspects of this idea of ethics in Buddhism. And I would say that of, of the many kind of beautiful parts of the Buddhist teachings, the idea of Buddhist ethics is maybe one, one of the many very interesting parts of Buddhism because it is quite unique in the world, the way that morality and ethics is presented in the Buddhist teachings. And this is one of the things we will see as we go through this. And when I say it is unique, is this for a number of reasons. And uh, one of the reasons uh, it is unique is that the Buddhism, uh, it, the, uh, the, the compass of ethics is very broad. Uh, yeah? So we talk about ethics of bodily conduct, how we treat other people in the world. Uh, we talk about the ethics of speech, uh, but we also talk about the ethics of mind. Uh, yeah? mental, the mental conduct uh, is an important part of Buddhist ethics. Uh, and so what that means is that uh, ethics in Buddhism is basically about our entire personality, uh, how we are in the world. Yeah? If you take body, speech and mind, it's pretty much who we are. Yeah? So it is about our habits, uh, our personality, how we express ourselves in the world and also even privately in our own thoughts. So it's very broad uh, and that makes it, uh, uh, makes it much more uh, complete than any other kind of system of ethics normally. Uh, that is one thing that is interesting about Buddhist ethics. Another aspect of Buddhist ethics that we will see shortly uh, is that not only uh, is it about not doing things, most systems of ethics around the world are about avoiding doing certain things, don't do that, don't do this, uh, but Buddhist morality, Buddhist ethics is also about what we should do, uh, about the positive side of ethics, yeah? Don't do this, do this instead. This is what you should be doing, yeah? So it has both uh, sides in it. That's also what makes it very fascinating here. Another thing about Buddhist ethics, and this is kind of where we really get into what Buddhist ethics is about, uh, that uh, the majority of religions in the world, when they talk about ethics, uh, they normally talk about rules of ethics. Yeah? You have like the, even in Buddhism we have rules, yeah? five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, etc., 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 up to inf almost infinite precepts. <laughs> I have translated the Vinaya Pitaka, which is the monastic rules and regulations, and there are many, many, many tiny, tiny, minute rules in that. Uh, it's not, not infinite, but it uh, feels like it when you're translating it. Uh. <laughs> so this is the um, uh, idea of ethics. The ethics is rules to some extent, uh, but actually in Buddhism, uh, ethics is much more than rules. Uh, ethics is about intention. Uh, but why you are doing things, right? And this is a very significant difference from, uh, between Buddhism and most other teachings that you will find, even in secular society very often. Uh, yeah? Intention sometimes is, um, is used, but not always. Uh, and so this is a very uh, important distinction, and it means uh, because we are dealing with intention, we're dealing with motivation, what is driving us, uh, it means that we have a very flexible system of ethics in Buddhism, uh, because it comes down to our motivation. Uh, what is driving our actions? Uh, that is the most important thing. Uh, that allows us to 
meet any kind of modern challenges in terms of ethics in a kind of a reasonable way, yeah, because we can use reason really yeah, to discern what is right and what is wrong here. Yeah. So this is uh, these are some of the ideas of Buddhism that makes the Buddhist idea of ethics very important. Yeah. And uh, in a sense, the, the root of the Buddhist idea of ethics, uh, if you look at it, the root is the idea, well, we shouldn't hurt other people. That's the root of ethics, yeah? The ethics of Buddhism is not about kind of random rules about who you should believe in and like that sort of stuff. Uh, the idea is always about what is painful for others. Uh, and if you do something which is painful to others deliberately, that is unethical. Uh, if you do something that is kind to others deliberately, that is ethical. Uh, it's a very kind of sensible system of ethics. Uh, and I think it is a system of ethics that a large, you know, the world in general could very well pay a lot more attention to when, we, uh, when they uh, look at how to apply ethics in the, you know, whatever situation, in war zones or in the United Nations or whatever. This is a, a system that I think everyone can kind of agree on. Uh. So the root idea is not to hurt others, but to make others happy. Uh. And so that is an idea you can use in your own life, right? Uh, am I doing this to hurt someone or am I doing something to be kind to somebody? Uh? And then some people would say, well, but I don't know sometimes what hurts other people. Uh. Yeah, what, what if I don't know? I don't really understand other people well. Sometimes I mean well, but they still get hurt, uh, right? It's a very, very common experience that we have. You want to do the right thing. The other person never still gets hurt, uh, right? Uh, and this is kind of sometimes difficult. So what are the ethics in that kind of situation? And that is where the reason why the Buddha says, well, the intention is what matters. Uh, as long as we are trying, as long as we are intending to do the right thing, we're coming from a good heart. That is important. We can never know exactly how other people will react to your actions, uh, but what you can know is the quality of your heart right now. Uh, and that quality is what makes something ethical or unethical. Uh, am I greedy? Am I doing this for myself? Or am I truly generous? Uh, Am I coming from ill will or am I coming because I really want the benefit of the other person? Am I coming from love, friendliness, compassion? Am I coming from a confused and deluded mind or am I coming from a sense of wisdom? And, and these are the ways to then decide ultimately why, whether something is ethical or not. And this whole thing becomes a very interesting system of ethics. So now let us Look at what the Buddha specifically says in the gradual training about ethical conduct. What I have just told you now is really pulling things together from many sources in the suttas. Yeah? You need to know the various sources, pull it all together, then you will know these kind of, um, how to present it in this kind of way. You don't find this sort of presentation directly in the suttas. But, uh, so, this is, so now we're going to look at how it is presented in a specific sutta, uh, the Samanyapala Sutta. So here we go. And how great king is a mendicant accomplished in ethics? So just uh, briefly to comment, this is why I don't like too much text because I want to kind of ideally comment on things statement by statement. Uh, there is a research done that when you have PowerPoint, uh, people learn less. Uh, isn't that interesting research? Yeah, because your attention is divided, right? You don't really know where to look there or to listen here, and you kind of, you know, you get... So I'm kind of... Um, anyway, we, this is where, what we're doing, so... Anyway, so... Great king, yeah, he's talking to King Ajatasattu. This is how you talk to kings in those days. Maharaja, great king. Yeah. 
Uh, and mendicant here is uh, just a word for a monastic, yeah, mendicants. Uh, so uh, you have the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis, they were the mendicants in those days. Uh, so usually this here is, the word here is usually bhikkave, which mean, means monks. Uh, but uh, Bhante Siddhartha translate as mendicant. And uh, I just want to maybe just for those of you who haven't heard these things so much before, mendicant is a very precise translation for the idea of bhikkhu. Uh, because bhikkhu literally means an alms mendicant, an alms receiver, yeah? someone who goes out and actually receives the alms from people in people around the world. That is exactly what a bhikkhu is. A bhikkhu and a bhikkhuni is ideally someone who goes into the village and they will then receive the support of the lay people in the village. Yeah? You see this in Sri Lanka in the present day, you see this in all the Buddhist countries, you see this going on now. It's a very beautiful thing and we do it a little bit here as well just to kind of live up to those traditions. Uh, so you are a mendicant, you are a receiver of the support of others and of course that entails certain obligations in return. Uh, and We'll look at this more as we come down here. Uh, a mendicant is like an old-fashioned English word, but that is exactly what it means, yeah? And for that reason it is useful. And also it is gender neutral. Huh? If you say monk, then it's no longer gender neutral. Huh? And this is also the benefit here, huh? that uh, many of these suttas were spoken to both monks and nuns. Huh? And for that reason it's quite kind of nice to have a gender neutral term, which I think is, is good. So this is Bhante Siddhartha's translation here. Huh? Downside is a little bit obscure. Many people say mendicant. What's that? And uh, you know, so fair enough. Uh, accomplished in ethics uh, or accomplished in virtue, uh, accomplished in morality. Sila sampanno. Uh. So what does it mean to be accomplished in this? And uh, to be accomplished means that. Uh, uh, in the highest sense, it means that you have like entered the stream. Yeah, sila pari pari. Pura is kind of a, paripura means to fulfill. So when someone who has fulfilled the sila is someone who has entered the stream, someone who has that full insight into the Buddhist teachings. Uh, these are kind of technical Buddhist words about you know, attaining full insight into the teachings, stream entry, sota panna, sota pati in Pali. Uh, so this is the usual meaning of this. Uh, but here we can take it in a slightly lesser sense. It just means that you are practicing this fully, really kind of getting into this kind of, uh, this kind of practices. Yeah? You are accomplished. You, it is something that we are striving towards, uh, something we are trying to achieve, not something that you kind of have achieved. Uh, ethics is always, uh, you're never, you're never going to be absolutely perfect until you become a stream entry, Sotapana, because only then do you internalize these teachings, uh, and only then do you internalize the idea of ethics. Uh, so you become, it's in a sense, you become these teachings. Uh, that's kind of remarkable. You become them because those qualities, you become filled with those qualities uh, yeah, of the Dhamma. And one of those qualities is the idea of Sila. Uh, so a Buddha is really like the walking embodiment of the Dhamma. He has completed those qualities and that is why he's called the Buddha and anyone who becomes an Arahant, a fully awakened one, is the same. So you become psychologically 100% sound, yeah, 100% happy, 100% at ease. Yeah. By the way, usually I say that you are very welcome to ask questions as we go along. So you, this is uh, true now as well, you're very welcome to ask, especially those of you who are new, don't feel that, be shy just because you're the first time you think, oh, my question is really silly. Silly questions are usually the good ones, so very, very free to ask silly questions. So.
So this is the idea of accomplished and virtue. We're trying to reach this lofty ideal as closely as we can. Yeah? This is kind of the purpose here. So accomplished in ethics doesn't mean that you are finished yet, but you are trying to move towards this. Uh, the other thing I should say, you will notice that uh, uh, this is the Buddha speaking, right? He's talking to the king. Even the Buddha calls the king great king. Uh, he doesn't just call him householder or something like that. Uh, he probably... So I think sometimes you have to be... You have to follow the conventions of society, yeah? So that's kind of what the Buddha does here. Uh, anyway, um, it's easy to get sidetracked with all kinds of things, but <laughs> I'm not going to try not to do that. Uh. And so he is speaking, you can see here he's making the point that he's saying a mendicant, yeah? So a monastic. Yeah. So what this teaching, training here, we're seeing here is about is really the training of a monastic, yeah? This is why these conduct we're talking about now, it only fully applies to monastics. But a large part of the training in virtue is the same whether you are a monastic or a layperson. It doesn't make any difference. So it is really as applicable to you as it is. Most of it anyway is as applicable. I will point out to some differences as we go along. Okay, so now let's get to, get to see what this is all about. Yeah, so uh, how is that? It's when a mendicant gives up the killing of living creatures. Uh, renouncing the rod and the sword, uh, they are scrupulous and kind, uh, living full of compassion for all living beings. Uh, this pertains to their ethics. Uh, what is this? It's a comment, but uh, for some reason it doesn't show. I'm not sure why. All right, never mind. It's uh, Bantasudato's comment on this section. So I'm going to comment on it anyway, so never mind. So uh, this is um, the idea of giving up. This is the first kind of right conduct. Uh, yeah, giving up the living of killing, uh, giving up the killing of living beings. Uh, and this is the same as the first precept that we have, you know, the five precepts for kind of the ordinary conduct in daily life. Uh, and so this is obviously very important. And the reason why it is first is because it is one of the most important of the ideas of ethics, uh, yeah? Not to kill living creatures. Uh, um, what does that mean? It means any living creature, uh, yeah? It means don't kill human beings. Uh, so if you like, if you kill human beings, please stop. Uh, I hopefully don't do that anyway. Yeah. Any killers? Have anyone here killed a human being before? No? Okay, good. <laughs> Might be scary to have someone like that. Okay, good. So at least we have the baseline of ethics is already in place. Yeah? Uh, but of course, living beings is much more than human beings. Living beings actually is all animals. Uh, and from a Buddhist point of view, all animals, even insects, are considered living creatures in this way. And there is an ethical content to whether you kill even an insect. It has an ethical significance. Yeah? So in Buddhism, because, and why? Well, the reason because they can feel. Yeah? Even insects, they feel the world. And it's kind of one of those astonishing, weird things that in the Western society, uh, we haven't really kind of had this idea. Animals have been considered almost like uh, machines. Yeah, they don't really feel anything. And for that reason, you can kind of kill them willy-nilly. Uh, this has kind of been the idea coming up through the ages in, uh, in, in, the, in Western society, Europe, and these kind of things. And it's kind of a crazy idea when you think about it. I don't know how we ever got that idea. 
Anyone who knows animals knows that they obviously have feelings, that they are very much like us in many ways, right? And so the Buddhism is that extension. Okay, we don't kill humans because they feel. Animals feel too. They feel fear. They feel all of these kind of things. And so you're kind even to animals. But of course, as you go down the hierarchy of animals, the more complex animals like humans, we have very complex emotions and the very, you know, we can feel a lot of, lot of feelings. A mosquito obviously sees the world in a very, very different way from human beings. And it's, everything is much simpler. Everything is quite different. Uh, and for that reason, the killing of a mosquito is considered far less significant in terms of morality than killing a human being. So it's not as important but if you want to purify your virtue, you have to stop killing any kind of living being. Yeah, this is kind of the idea here. But you can go even beyond that. Yeah, you can ask yourself where exactly is the cutoff line? Where, what, what, when can we kind of, uh, you know, what, what does it mean, a living being? Where is the cutoff line? And it's hard to know really exactly. The Pali word is panatipata. Pana means a breathing being. And so arguably you could say that what that means is as long as you have a metabolism, because metabolism is like using oxygen to, to survive, anything that has metabolism, maybe you should kill. Yeah? So amoebas maybe, or even some microbes. Uh, viruses apparently don't have metabolism. Viruses don't really live in an ordinary way, so it seems they're not encompassed by this. Uh, but it's all a bit artificial. And of course, when it comes to things like health and especially the health of the body, then you know, killing bacteria is not usually considered a problem from a Buddhist point of view. Yeah, taking medicines is usually considered acceptable. But any living being that you kind of see in nature in general, we avoid killing it because usually they have some kind of very refined or very subtle form of consciousness, even those living beings. So you avoid killing living beings, but that is not all. Then you have the idea of renouncing the rod and the sword. Rod, danda in Pali. <coughs> and um, danda, it is very similar to the idea of stick in, uh, uh, in, in English. Yeah? So, and, and stick is like punishment. Yeah? And in, English, in Pali it's exactly the same. The word danda also means punishment. And so we avoid not just the killing of living beings, but we avoid the punishment. We avoid the physical, uh, you know, physical um, um, hitting someone or striking someone or the kind of, you know, physical pain because no one wants physical pain. And so we, we don't do that. That is kind of an important point here because very often we think of the five precepts, the first one, as just not killing. But actually, as you can see here, is more than just not killing. Torturing or hitting or in any way physically oppressing someone goes against this precept, right? Uh, any kind of uh, um, yeah, bad conduct in that particular area. So uh, rod, punishment, stick, yeah, all of these things are bad ideas. Sword, sword of course also is like a, uh, a um, object that we use for torture, maybe for cutting off uh, limbs or something or anything like that. So all of these things, any kind of physical punishment like this uh, is actually included right there in, the, in this precept, which is interesting, I think, maybe not always pointed out. Uh. But then comes the interesting part. Yeah? Now we're talking about the negative thing. Yeah? And here is where the positive part comes in. Uh. 
And this is not included in the first precept. The first precept just says you shouldn't kill living beings, but here it gives a much broader definition of what this means. You should be scrupulous and kind, living full of compassion for all living beings. This is, the, this is what we should be doing. Yeah? The negative morality, don't do the bad. The positive morality, be kind and caring and compassionate towards all living beings. Yeah, do the things that they like. Be kind to them through your actions, through how you are. This is the ideal here. And so this, again, as I said before, it shows this duality here. Yeah? Do the good, don't do the bad. But what is also very interesting about this, and this is where I, what I was talking about before, is that you will notice here that the idea expressed here is the idea that you don't kill and you are compassionate. Yeah? In other words, the reason why you don't kill is because you are compassionate. Yeah? So the, the motivation is that you are compassionate. But what about in the situation where you kill out of compassion? How does that fit into this? Yeah, it doesn't really fit in, right? Because this talks about compassion and not killing, as if the two are the same. But are there situations when you can kill, but actually you are compassionate? Let's say that someone, we have recently, we had this voluntary, voluntary assisted dying law coming through here in, in Western Australia, where you are in certain circumstances, you can get approved to be you know, to, to end your life because you just had enough and things are really difficult. And I think, to me, that sounds like a very compassionate thing to do. If people want to die, do we have the right to tell them, you must live? It's a kind of torture, isn't it? I want to die, please. You must live. Yeah, I'm telling you, you have no choice. You will have to live. Is that compassionate? And this is kind of the weird thing, right? If, if you are... From a Christian point of view, life is often considered sacrosanct. And because life itself is sacrosanct, it means that any kind of killing of life is considered bad. So if someone wants to die, they say, no, you cannot die, you must live. Because God lived with his life, whether you want to die or not, is irrelevant. Yeah, we're going to force you to live. And you can almost use that as a torture technique, right? Yeah, I don't like you, so I'm going to make you live. Ha, 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 evil. Almost, yeah, you can almost see it that way, and so I would argue that if someone is in their right mind, they're kind of coming to the end of their life, they don't really feel they can do anything anymore, and they want to die, do we have the right to tell them that you must live? I don't think so. Yeah. And in that kind of situation, I would say that compassion and killing can actually be the... It's not really killing anymore. That's kind of the point, right? Because killing kind of implies no compassion. It implies harshness. But it's more like um, helping someone out of suffering, really. Yeah. But you can see here how the, there are some nuances here. Yeah? It is not kind of black and white. Uh, and because of those nuances, this is why, again, the Buddhist idea of ethics is so um, refined and so nuanced. And it kind of gives us the ability to deal with these very tricky situations. Uh, so I remember when we were doing, looking at this uh, law here in Western Australia, Voluntary Assisted Dying, uh, I think Ajahn Brahm, he wrote a letter in support of that in the Western Australian. Yeah? Why should we not have this law here in Western Australia? As a monk, I can never recommend anyone to die, because that kind of goes against my precepts. But the general idea that there can be such a law is, is not really, uh, you know, is something that you cannot, uh, it's not really wrong to support as such.
So this is what we're trying to do in our life. We're trying to develop the compassion, develop all of these beautiful qualities uh, inside of us. Uh, and this is what so much of the Buddhist practice is about, yeah, developing those good qualities. Uh, and uh, you may already, probably everyone here has some degree of compassion, yeah, that's kind of, because that's kind of part of being a human being. Uh, but this can be developed much more. Uh, yeah, compassion, the building up of the good qualities can be, can be furthered a lot, lot more. And sometimes it is only our imagination that stops us from understanding how compassionate, how kind, and how um, scrupulous it is possible to be. Yeah, you can develop this again and again and again, building it up to become very powerful things. And on Friday night I talked about this idea of developing perceptions. Yeah, a very important part of the Buddhist teachings. And perceptions are like the raw material, like when you work on it in the right way, you can build up compassion. How do we build up compassion out of perceptions? Well, it's, it's quite simple. If you really see other people suffering, right, and you know it isn't really their fault, non-self, yeah, suffering and non-self coming together, and also you know that you have the ability to alleviate and help that, and you want to alleviate, and you want to help. The more you reflect like that, and the more you build that perception up in your mind, the more compassion you're going to have in the world. So it is really about how we look at others that gives rise to compassion or not. And by building up those perceptions, those underlying ideas, those views about how the world is and how people are, we are actually uh, giving rise to compassion in this way. Compassion comes from this kind of development. Uh, and this is something we can do throughout the day. Yeah, you can always develop more compassion. Uh, yeah? You see the suffering, you see the potential to be kind and helpful, uh, and you use that possibility, uh, and you build up uh, these qualities within. Uh. So never, so this, you can, now you can see why even this very first rule of ethics uh, why you can spend your whole life just developing this one rule, right? This one thing is actually a whole lifetime of work until you become fully compassionate like the Buddha was uh, and spending his whole life just teaching and just kind of, in a sense, renouncing, giving up his own uh, you know, ability to meditate all the time because he was teaching so much. Uh, and this becomes what your life is about. Uh. So right there, in the very first rule of ethics, almost the whole path of Buddhism is found right there. That means we can stop the sutta, is that right? We have, the whole thing is already done. <laughs> he agrees, he wants to go home, I think. <laughs> Sorry, Venerable, I'm being naughty, that's good, yeah. But it's kind of true, right? And this is kind of the the, the kind of the extraordinary things about the suttas, when you bore into one element of the suttas, one element of the Buddhist path, almost the whole path is found within that element. And uh, I remember Bhante Sujato had this idea of uh, the, the fractal aspect of Buddhism. You know about fractal geometry? This, uh, this, this fractal geometry is a kind of very... Uh, it, it, I'm sure you must have seen some of these pictures of fractal geometry. It's like you, you have a certain shape, uh, and then you focus in on that shape, and the same shape is found on the smaller level. And you focus in on that one, but the same shape is found on that level. Yeah, It's called the Mandelbrot set or something like that. Fractal geometry, where the pattern repeats themselves at different levels. And the Buddhist teachings are a bit like that. Yeah, You can focus in, you can focus out. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I, I thought that was kind of... Uh, 
Fascinating, because there's some truth to that. So the whole path is almost there. Okay, there's a, lacking a little bit maybe in the wisdom thing, because compassion takes you a long way, but it may not take you all the way to the full wisdom, eh? but it takes you a long way on the path. Eh? Please, please, Ananda. Yeah. <laughs> Ajahn, uh, when you mentioned this uh, fracto concept, would you say this, all these have come from the naturally accepted good principles, natural laws, uh, Buddha revealed to the world the natural laws? Yes. So therefore, yeah. Yeah. The, the broadest picture, yeah. everything has come from the naturally accepted good yeah. principles? Yeah, yeah. Would you say, because he says, uh, yeah. I think number of places, especially in that Dhammapada, mm. that Nahi Vere Navirani, that, uh, mm. that uh, it's a natural principle. Right, yeah, it's a natural so law, exactly. Natural yeah. law. Yeah. 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 So yeah. That, that is the biggest picture. Yeah. And from that yeah. has evolved, or rather, Buddha, these are all the Buddhas, isn't it? Yeah. All the Buddhas would have um, established these the same thing. Rules. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that is just a discovery. It's a discovery of a natural law. Exactly. That's what it is. Uh. Natural law. And then you can focus in on that natural law on the small aspects. And in the small aspects has also found the larger pictures. So everything is kind of self-referential in this way, self referring to itself back and forth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. within the natural law, then first we have yeah. the four noble truths and then the yeah. fall part and then all that is following. Yeah. And these are the... Yeah. At the um, you know the famous sutta Majjhimalika 28, the Mahasati, the Mahahatipadopana sutta, the sutta on the greater, greater sutta on the elephant's footprint, uh, yes. is, is kind of one of these things. It starts off with the four noble truths, then it goes to the first noble truth. Uh, yeah. Yes. And from the first noble truth, he goes to the five aggregates. Five aggregates, he goes to the rupa aggregate. From the rupa aggregate, he goes to the four elements. From that, he goes to the rupa element first of all, and he kind yes. of goes down, 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 down level down. by level. Uh, and this is almost like this. Uh, and so you go down to the small one, and then within that small one, the whole four noble truths can be found again. It then brings it back, the brings four noble back. truths. Uh, yeah. And so it's kind of, that sutta is actually very interesting in that it's way, just, how everything is, con the large picture is contained in the smallest element, uh, yeah? And uh, the large picture also contains the small elements themselves. So it's a kind of this self-reference. Mm. Yeah. And, and uh, Ajahn Ganha yeah. is one of the mm. key, what shall I say, um, uh, sayings is that Dhamma is natural. Yeah, right, yeah. I, I think this came from Ajahn Chah, actually. Ajahn Chah, yeah. yeah. he was saying, but yeah, that's, that's maybe, yeah, is that, that's, that's a similar, it's that kind of the same thing, because uh, this is the idea that uh, whatever experience you have in the world is all Dhamma. Everything is Dhamma, yeah. And you can always see Dhamma everywhere, impermanence. If your eyes are open, uh, yeah, the nature of the world is always teaching you if you are ready for things. Uh, yeah, the uncertainty, the unreliability, the uh, non-self nature, the suffering, all of this is always there in front of your eyes if you're open to it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Now, it's one of the things that I find very interesting about the Buddhist teachings, and I gave a talk about that quite recently, is the idea that the Buddhist system of, you know, of seeing the world is a naturalistic system. Uh, it is naturalism. It's like science is also naturalism. It's about understanding nature. And Buddhism is about understanding nature. Buddhism is not about supernatural things. Everything is within nature. And this is what makes it, to my mind, an um, acceptable system, precisely because it is natural in that way. Yes, there are things that are different. Yes, there are things that are not normal, maybe, but they're still natural. That is an important point. Yeah.
All right. Anyone else want to say anything? Yeah. Eddie, okay. Yeah. Ajahn Bramley, in the screen, you know, the shorter section on ethics, mm. it says renouncing the rod and the sword, you know. Mm. That is the olden times, and so in the modern modern times now, that includes bombings and from aeroplane and shooting missiles, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it includes bombing. Bombing is no good. Don't recommend bombing here. Yeah. <laughs> Even shooting with guns not recommended. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so this, this just, what this means is that any kind of physical punishment is bad. That's what it means, basically. Thank and you. And of course, any kind of warfare <coughs> is included in that. Uh, yeah. So absolutely, yeah. All right. So are you all happy with that? Yeah. Um, okay. So this is what I mean, that the Buddhist system of ethics is quite unique in many ways. And it's quite, really quite... Uh, Exceptional and, and for that reason very interesting. Yeah, okay. So this pertains to the ethics. Yeah, someone who is uh, goes forth in this way. Yeah. Then we come to the second uh, rule of ethics that pertains to the the bodily actions. They give up stealing. They take only what's given. They expect only what's given. They keep themselves pure by not stealing. This pertains to their ethics. Oh, I see. Now there we are. It's coming up. Okay, all right. Um, so this is the second one. Yeah, not stealing, not killing living beings, not stealing. Uh, in other words, not taking anything which is not rightfully yours. Um, so you only take what is given to you, uh, what is naturally or rightfully yours. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, obviously a very important point. Uh, um, then we have the idea that you expect only what is given. And I always found that a little bit strange, that particular translation, because what does it mean to expect only what is given? Uh, and what it seems to mean is that you only want what is given. Uh, yeah? You don't desire things that are not given to you. In other words, you don't want to steal. You don't have even the thought of stealing, right? Uh, but you always accept it at what comes naturally. Uh. And so here again you can see this idea that you start off with the idea of not physically taking anything which isn't yours. Uh, and that goes into the mind as well. Yeah? You don't actually... Uh, even want to steal, even the idea of taking something that is not yours or what is given to you or is naturally yours goes, feels wrong yeah? and you don't even think about that. Uh. So the mind and the body kind of coming together in this way. Uh. And then it has this interesting sentence that you keep yourself pure or clean, it says here, yeah? uh, by, by not stealing yeah? or thieving. Yeah? And uh, the idea here seems to be that if you steal, then there is a degree of, uh, um, you feel impure as a consequence of that. Yeah? You feel yucky here. Yeah? You feel like you've touched something yucky and uh, you feel bad inside because of that. Uh, so this is, if you want that degree of purity, uh, you really have to avoid taking, not taking what is not yours. Uh, so this is true in, in everything in life, right? Uh, uh, not stealing, in kind of e all the whole breadth of, of our existence, uh, uh, from the smallest little theft to the kind of largest one. Uh, so we um, live in purity in this way. Uh, 
Now the opposite of stealing, we have already seen the opposite of kind of killing and treating people badly, which is actually compassion. The opposite of stealing is not actually mentioned, and the reason it's not mentioned is because it is found everywhere else in the suttas. That is, of course, generosity. When you steal something, you are, uh, you are thinking about yourself, you are being very egocentric, and uh, all of these kind of things. But when you are generous, it is the opposite kind of mind state. Yeah? You're not egocentric. Yeah? You are sharing with the world. Uh, these are opposite kind of mental qualities. Uh, one is bad, one is wholesome. Uh, and if you can kind of feel, think about it for a while, yeah? what does it feel like uh, to steal something? Yeah? I don't know if you have ever stolen anything, but uh, if you have never stolen, you can kind of just try the mental exercise of stealing and see what it feels like. Yeah? And think about that versus the idea of generosity. And if you feel those feelings, you will feel the difference. One is a small feeling that is about you. It's about your little world. I want something. It's about greed. And it's a very limiting and ugly kind of feeling inside of you. Whereas the idea of generosity is where you reach out to the world. is the opposite of locking yourself into your own little world. And instead reaching out to the world around you. You're, you know, it's like you, you're opening up your heart, so to speak, to the whole world. And that difference will give you an idea of the difference between spirit, what is spiritual in this world, what is truly wholesome, compared to what is unwholesome yeah, and greedy and selfish. Sometimes little exercises like that, yeah, feeling the distinction between the two can be very useful for understanding why one is positive and why one is negative and what it means to live a truly spiritual life. So the reason then why generosity is not mentioned here is because generosity is talked about so many other places in the suttas because it is such an important foundation on the Buddhist path. And it is something that everyone in this world should really uh, we should all try to do more of that, yeah. Whether even monastics, lay people, everyone, uh, because it is such an important part of what this is about. Uh. So, um, again, uh, you know, is there any situations where stealing might be okay? Well, look at your motivations. Maybe there is some extreme situation where taking something which is not given might be acceptable because uh, maybe you just have the intention of borrowing something or you are in a desperate situation someone is dying or you know there's always some extreme situations where taking something in this way might be okay because you're actually coming from compassion and kindness rather than some negative motivation all right so what do people think about this any thoughts <laughs> Robin Hood. <laughs> is, is it, was it Robin Hood? Was he right or was he wrong? Yeah. So the question is, I, I can just repeat the question, Conrad. Yeah, it's fine. What about stealing from the rich and giving to the poor? It's not really, still not right, yeah, because you're still stealing, yeah. And so it is not, it is not super bad necessarily. But again, it depends on why you do it. Do you do it because you hate the rich, or you do it because you love the poor, right? So again, remember, motivation is what makes something right or wrong. Yeah? So it's not the, th the act itself is often very, cannot tell you whether something is right or wrong. So you have to look into a person's heart. Yeah? Why are they doing this? I hate the rich, I just want to, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give to the poor, but I really hate the rich. Or, oh, I have so much compassion for the poor. Okay, the rich, 
I feel sorry for them, they will suffer a bit, but I just have to do this. It's two very different ideas yeah, in the mind. Uh, so why are you doing these things? Uh, and uh, so this matters. But in this case, it's not still not right, yeah, because you are actually stealing. Yeah? So it is not the right way of doing things. Uh, in that case, we should try to get a more just society. Yeah? We should try to kind of have a society which kind of supports the people who are really struggling a bit more. Yeah? And uh, I, you know, generally speaking, my understanding is that the societies in the world that are the most happy is where you have a degree of equality. If there's too much inequality in society, it creates unhappiness all around. The rich people, they kind of fence themselves in in their little communities, yeah, with big walls because they're afraid of poor people kind of coming and robbing them. And the poor people feel really kind of hard done by because society is not supporting them. So a certain degree of... Um, you know, of uh, compassion and, uh, you know, equality, I think is really important in society for having exactly where that bar line goes, it's very hard to say, but I think in gen as a general principle, it's really important. Uh, there is a lot of very interesting psychological research about these things today, and it's generally known that that is true, yeah, more equal societies are happier societies. Everyone is happier, including the rich. So why don't we do it? Uh, <laughs> kind of obvious. Uh, Anyway, Eddie. Sorry, Ajahn Bramley. I'd like to say something, but before I say so, I'd like to say that I've got no animosity against any religion, okay? And I won't mention any religion specifically, but I just say religions, okay? Just re regarding this war now, no? just recently I read comments, no, okay? Comments from top people you know, in, in the, 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 the war section. It says that. Uh, the prophecies you know, from the religion, it says that they have to go and, and kill you know, and flatten the place, you know, okay, to take the land, you know, okay? that's killing sin, okay? and the, the stealing is they have to go and, and how they say, in, and get the land, you know. Steal the land. Yeah, yeah. they steal the land mm. because God says so, the thing. Mm. You know. mm -hmm. yeah. So that's why you have all this. You know, on the other yeah. hand, we have the mm. compassion from Buddhist sense, mm. and this one's from religion. It's stated, and the mm. top people they quote the Bible too. They're, they're, they're mm. doing this because the Bible, the the the, the prophecy says that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly, and that's why, that's why what we need in the world, we need a arbiter, someone who judges that is above religions, beyond religions. And this is why we have things like human rights. Yeah? Human rights are things that were laid down by the United Nations. And the United Nations is a non-religious body. It is above the religions. And that's, that's the right way of dealing with those situations, to say that we, in these situations we cannot deal with religion because religion is biased. Religion supports one particular people over, over someone else. So we have to kind of the religion should be lower down the hierarchy, human rights should be at the top. And this is one of the things that we have argued. I mean, I, on a few occasions I've been to Curtin University and given a lecture there on human rights. Usually we were invited every year to do that. And that was one of the arguments I was always making, that just because I'm a Buddhist, I don't want Buddhism to be on top. What should be on top is human rights. The good thing about Buddhism, we kind of fall in line with human rights anyway, quite nicely, so it's not an issue for us. But for some religion, it is actually much more tricky. But human rights should be on top, uh, because that is where we can avoid these kind of clashes uh, yeah, in that way. Uh. So religion should always be... You cannot do violence in the name of religion, uh, from a Buddhist point of view. That's not acceptable. Uh, yeah. mm. Anyone else? Ajahn? Conrad, yeah, please. Uh. I was just thinking about uh, things like, like tax or... Uh, 
even small things like paying for parking, um, where you're not actually maybe taking, stealing an object. Yeah. I wonder how that might fit in with it, if it could be done, if it were to be done honestly, say someone offered a service and mm. then offered, offered it for cash and didn't pay tax, how that might fit within this precept. Yeah, I, yeah that's, that's tax is kind of uh, tricky, I suppose, because tax is, uh, you might disagree with the tax system, right? So you never agreed. And there are, there are some people who argue that taxation is, th is stealing. <laughs> some people who make that argument. Uh, uh, but, you know, really the reality is that we need some kind of taxation because otherwise our, our society collapses. We need to keep up the roads, to have the schools, to have the judicial system, to have the police. All of that relies on taxation. And our society wouldn't really work. So I think, uh, I would say that generally speaking, it's the moral thing to do is to kind of pay your taxes, I would say. It's like an agreement we have in society. Okay, we have a democracy. In democracy, we run it in this way. And the results of democracy is that we have these rules. Okay, we kind of agree on that system. Uh, so we should live up to the rules of that system uh, you know or uh, yeah so uh, in, in a case of um, not paying a parking fee right if you have supposed to park well it is the, the deal is that if you park there you're supposed to pay right it's so not living up to the deal so even though it is not taking anything it is still a kind of uh, kind of falls under the idea of stealing because you are not uh, living up to the deal yeah that is that is there yeah so would it depend on your agreement with the deal so say you, in your values or for whatever reason, I'm not anti-tax or anti-parking anyway, I'm just trying to yeah. gonna, I'm just maybe think about it when we're looking at this preset. But if say someone didn't agree with the, the deal, yeah. would it have the same sort of karmic uh, influence for them? Yeah, maybe not. Uh, yeah, maybe because maybe you're doing it from some kind of principle. I mean, everything in the end, the end of the day comes from your intentions. Uh, I still think probably would be not wouldn't be wholesome because we are part of the society. You know, if you use all the uh, the benefits of that society, I mean, you're bound to drive on the roads, for example, right? You're using the benefits, but then you don't pay your taxes. I mean, it's it's not uh, it doesn't seem to me it seems a bit dodgy. Huh? Yeah. So I think I think of course yes, it will vary a bit on why you're doing things uh, because motivation is always an important factor in these things. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's probably uh, probably not yeah probably not a little bit bad uh, yeah. In, in a way, the opposite is actually much more beautiful, yeah? And you think, well, actually, okay, I pay to the government. I don't always agree with everything that the money is used for. Some of the money goes to the military. I may not agree about that. Uh, but in general, we are, it's holding society together, right? The fact that we pay taxes. Uh, it makes all of these things possible, and I'm also a beneficiary of this. Okay. I actually, I like to support other people as well. It's a wonderful opportunity to kind of bring us together and have a good society together. So I will willingly pay my taxes. And here's an extra few dollars for you. Yeah? <laughs> so kind of generous to the tax man. Yeah? And they kind of give up a bit of extra, whatever. And this is just a kind of a positive view of how the money is used. Yeah? It's just another way of kind of being... Yeah, being generous in a sense. I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend that kind of generosity. I think it's much more powerful to be generous interpersonally when you do it to someone who is there, yeah? Because you see the person, you know who they are, you know the suffering, you know the problems. And that kind of generosity, when you help someone immediately, you feel that straight away. Yeah? Okay, if you give a... I know that there is this um, uh, movement in the world, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called, uh, it's called effective altruism. And it's this idea that uh, you give where you get most bang for the buck, yeah? You get most return for the, for the, for the gift, uh, yeah? 
And so you kind of think, well, if I give, where, where will it have most return, right? So you kind of build up this spreadsheet with where, where kind of most, you get most things back. Okay, if I, if I give to this power plant in Kenya, that will give most overall benefit, yeah? So you give your money to that power plant. Uh, but the problem is that it's a very calculating, yeah? And it becomes very cold kind of giving. Yeah? And when you give in a very cold way, it doesn't touch your heart in, a, in very much at all. Yeah? yeah, it becomes this kind of... Uh, and I was reminded, I was, I was in Malaysia a few years ago, and I, I was told there, well, in Malaysia, we all have these spreadsheets, yeah? And they were joking, of course, but this is kind of how they, how they kind of were saying it. We have all this spreadsheet, and we have kind of, this person is an Arahant, this one is an Anagam, this is sort of, and if I give there, I get so much, you know, so much return if I give there. And so they kind of calculate how to get maximum return by giving to these kind of people, right? <laughs> and, and then the question was, is this the right way of doing things? And of course it's not, because it's cold. Yeah? It is not coming from the heart. Yeah? And because of that, it doesn't really work. Yeah? It will still have an effect, because you're still giving. Yeah? They were joking about themselves, basically. Yeah? They were just having a laugh at their own expense, which is always kind of nice. Yeah? But there's a little bit of that idea. Yeah? You, you want to have returns. There's a little bit too much greed involved in that kind of giving. Yeah? And so um, uh, the best kind of giving, I would say, is where you give to someone who is there close by, someone you know, where you can feel kind of straight away the human connection with someone, yeah? You support someone like a beggar in the street, and some, suddenly you have all this compassion for a beggar in the street, yeah? And you give them something, yeah? At that moment you're making a human connection yeah? with someone who is suffering, yeah? yeah? Someone who has a problem, and you just give something, yeah? And I know that in my own life, sometimes I've been the benefactor of people's... I mean, as a monk, I'm the benefactor of people's kindness all the time. And it's one of the beautiful things about being a monastic. But even before I was a monastic, you know, I remember sometimes people did something really kind to you. And it's like, wow, it's so touching, right? You actually do make a human connection with people. When you give us something, suddenly out of the blue like that, it's a very beautiful thing. But if you use this idea of effective altruism, where you give to the most effective thing on the planet, and they have some really weird ideas, some really strange ideas about the survival of humanity in the next billion years, that kind of ideas. How can I ensure the maximum effect over these enormous spans, that kind of thing? And to me, it does not make sense from a Buddhist point of view, because it forgets about the, the personal effect that giving is supposed to have. Yeah, and that's the problem, yeah. Mr. Mirihagalla. I'm thinking what was going on in uh, King Ajatasattva's mind when the Buddha was teaching this. Um, now, the Samanapala Sutta, the question asked is from each uh, uh, religious teacher, originally, from the start, was um, what would, how would your um, mendicants, or how is your monastics behave, isn't it? Then there's no question about the lay people. It's, it doesn't relate to lay person. You mean at the, you mean at the beginning of the sutta? Yeah, at the beginning of the whole sutta. Yeah. Um, so now, he was not a mendicant when he killed his father, isn't it? Yeah, he, he, never, he never was a mendicant, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Maybe by this time he must be thinking, okay, I'm not a mendicant at that time, so I, I'm, I'm exempt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. Yeah. And there, and there yeah. was no mention yeah. anywhere, even down the line, yeah. the Buddha explained that, okay, these are actually equally accept, accept, applicable 
to yeah. a normal human being. Yeah. Isn't it? These are rules of nature. Yes. Yeah. Uh, True. Say. But, and, uh, yeah. but yeah. probably this is not where King Ajatasattva got the idea, okay, I did the wrong thing. He had, al- he had already killed his father. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. By this and time, he has already killed the father. And whether, whether you know or not uh, yeah. that this is bad, it still yeah. will have the same effect. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, yeah, karma is karma. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, Buddha yeah. did not use this sutta to tell him you did the wrong yeah. thing yet. Yeah. No, the, yeah, the Buddha doesn't kind of tell. It's interesting. The Buddha doesn't. I mean, according to the latest Buddhist tradition, the, you yeah. go you go to a really bad rebirth if you kill your father, right? Uh, and yeah. and uh, but the Buddha doesn't say that to him. Uh, no, no. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. He only uh, answers the question exactly. Exactly, precisely. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And I, th- I think if you tell someone that because yeah. of your actions you're going to be reborn in the in a really bad realm, like a hell realm or whatever. Uh, you may actually be very detrimental for that person uh, because they will feel really, really, really bad. Right? Imagine if you know this, it may destroy the rest of your life as a consequence. Uh, and so um, yeah, I think the Buddha probably did the right thing in not saying anything. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah, mm, yeah. Thank thanks, Prem. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Sorry, just a quick comment yeah. on that, yeah. Ajahn. Sorry. Okay. I think at the end of the sutta, uh, Buddha very firmly tells the king uh, that uh, yes, you did something foolish yeah. because Buddha, king himself says that uh, please yeah. forgive me he does. Uh, yeah. that because I did foolish yeah. thing by killing my righteous uh, king, my father, yeah. I did that wrong. So Buddha yeah. did not try to, uh, what shall I say, pacify him. Yeah, no, no, but absolutely. He, he yeah, very firmly yeah. said, yeah. Uh, "You did the wrong thing. Yeah. You by killing your father, who was a very righteous king." Mm. So I think by that time he would have got the message that uh, yeah. I did the wrong thing. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah. Don't don't reveal everything, Anna, because otherwise, <laughs> no need to come back. No need <laughs> later on. No, but but you, no, but you're right. You're quite right. And it's and it's it's good to have a preview anyway. I'm just mess joking around. But the uh, you, you know the um, yeah what he says is because he's feeling remorse, right? Very strong remorse. And of course the Buddha will accept that. Uh, and sometimes that is a skillful thing to do is actually to accept someone's remorse and to allow them to and to then give them forgiveness as far as you can forgive them. Uh, that is a skillful thing to do. Uh, if you say oh no worries you know don't worry about it, it's fine. That is also maybe not quite true, right? Maybe there, <laughs> maybe it isn't quite fine. So the Buddha does that. Uh, and then he says, when, after the king has left, he then says to the monks, well, if he hadn't killed his father, he would have become a stream enterer. Basically, he had destroyed his spiritual potential by killing his father. And then in the later uh, other parts of the canon, it says that, well, if you kill your father or mother or an arahant like that, then basically you, uh, you know, you're doomed to a bad rebirth in the future. You cannot ordain as a monk. Yeah, all these things are blocked off from you if you do that. And uh, so, because you are, you know, been damaged badly in a sense, uh, yeah. Everyone else is happy? Uh, yeah, okay, good. Uh, glad you're happy. Yeah. Happy customers. Uh. So let's move on to the next. Uh, uh, this is why this pseudo class take a long time. Now we know why they take such a long time. Uh. So, but it's kind of nice. I don't know. I enjoy going slowly. Yeah, there's no point in rushing these things. We just want to teach Dhamma anyway. You go fast or slow is the same thing here. So, but, but if you do feel that I'm going terribly slow, just uh, tell me off. Yeah, and I'll, I will take it on board <laughs> because I don't want to torture people. <coughs> torture people is bad karma for me. So, <laughs> okay, next one. 
they give up unchastity here. They are celibate, set apart, avoiding the vulgar act of sex. This pertains to their ethics. So uh, this is, uh, now we're talking about the monastic path. Yeah? So uh, here we're talking about the give up unchastity is the, uh, uh, the brahmacharya. So it's the abrahmacharya viramani, I give up. And basically what, chastity is not such a good word. It basically means giving up all sexual activity. So it's very broad. All sexual activity is abandoned. Yeah? This is kind of the idea here. And that's why uh, you avoid sex, but not just yeah, all, all, act, all actions related to sex is what you avoid. And an interesting word is the word vulgar. Yeah? The word vulgar is... Um, Usually these days it means something coarse, yeah, something really bad. And uh, of course, there is some that fits the context a little bit. Uh, but the Pali word is gamma, and gamma means related to the village. Uh, and the village is like the ordinary people in ancient India. So it means something like avoiding the ordinary act, yeah, the common act of sexuality. That's really kind of sense, the real sense, I think, of this word and the real purpose of it. Uh, and... Um, in from usually, when we talk about uh, uh, this particular act of ethics, we talk about not doing harm through sexuality. Yeah? And this is the Kamesu uh, Michachara, wrong actions in, the sen in sensuality or in the sexual realm. Uh, so that is the ordinary precept for lay people, uh, yeah? if you live an ordinary life. But here it's taken one step further, that's why this refers to monastics. So. Uh, there's two stages here. So this is one of the stages where there's a clear difference for, between the two. Um, so uh, why do we do this? And this, it seems like you know, a lot of people around the world says, well, you know, why give up the fun in life, right? That's kind of the idea. Yeah? People are just having a good time, enjoying kind of the relationships or whatever. Why should we give that up? And we want to have both. We want to have good meditation and we want to enjoy enjoy the world, right? This is the standard way that people think about this. Uh, the reason is simply that uh, uh, the, the opposite of sexuality is deep meditation. Uh, people don't really usually understand that, uh, that these are opposite sides. Yeah? And the reason for that is actually very simple once you understand what is going on. Uh, because any enjoyment in the world, whether it's the sights or the sounds or or sexuality or whatever, is the mind going out into that world. It's an enjoying something external to you. Uh, that is what it is. Uh. Whereas meditation is going within. Uh, yeah? And to be able to go within, you have to let go of what is outside. Uh. You cannot be both within and outside at the same time. Uh. And the more enjoyment you have in the world outside, in that world of the five senses, the more you're going to be attached to that world and the more difficult it is going to be to let go when you meditate. These, are go these things go in opposite directions. So when we talk about, previously we talked about um, stealing, the opposite of stealing is generosity. Yeah? You have the two spans. The opposite of indulging in the world of the five senses, especially sexuality because, it is because of its nature, the opposite there is meditation, is samadhi. They are the opposites. And this is a very important point because people don't fully grasp, especially I think this is a really big problem in the Western world, uh, 
uh, because we haven't really got used to the ideas of Buddhism, don't understand what renunciation is for. What is the purpose of renouncing? Uh, and this, of course, is one of the really fundamental aspects of renunciation. Uh, renunciation has many, many degrees to it. Uh, and I think it would be nice to give a talk on renunciation more fully, completely here, maybe at Amalok at one point. But this is a very important part of it, and it is a necessary part to really stabilize the meditation practice. And that is why we live the way we do as monastics. That's kind of the whole point of it, the whole purpose of it. And that is why the monastic path is really closer to uh, emulating the Buddhist ideal. You get closer to the Buddhist ideal and you are more likely to find people among monastics who have profound meditation, who have real insight, more likely to find it there than among lay people, precisely because it gets closer to the ideal of what it means to be enlightened or whatever. So these are the two sides here of, um, uh, of this particular precept. Yeah. So uh, giving up all the fun in life uh, to gain a higher kind of fun. Uh, that's kind of the thing. Uh, this is kind of the beautiful thing about um, uh, renunciation. Renunciation, you know, in English the word renunciation is kind of very, it's like a killjoy. You give something up, it's not kind of obvious you get anything in return. Uh, but in Buddhism you renounce something lower to achieve something higher. Uh, so it's actually something very positive. Uh, yeah, it's not, uh, it, which may not be fully reflected uh, in the word uh, renunciation. Uh. Any questions about this? Sir? Yeah, please, sir. Sorry, I may repeat it. Yeah. Uh, it's the word nekamma in Pali. Mm. You mentioned that renunciation, that's the, I'm sure that's great. But uh, does it give that? Um, Etymology or ne something like that. Nekama ne is the is like the opposite of karma. Karma is sensuality, yes. right? Uh, so it's nekama, non-sensuality. Non-sensuality. Non yeah, yeah. So it it doesn't give that. Uh, what shall I say? At least the inferential um, knowledge that it is to gain something that give up something lower. Not really. Not really. Say that. You have to that you have to see it from see the context. The whole, whole picture. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to carry on till uh, four thirty. So just to let you know, so I'm going to keep on going. Um, and of course, if you are, if you need to go, whatever, you're always very welcome to leave at any any time. Just to be perfect, clear about that. So that is. These are the three aspects of bad ethics through the body. Yeah, This is what you see throughout the suttas. It's divided between body, speech, and mind. And this is kind of the body part of ethics. And uh, very often in the suttas you find that things are, the way they are stated, it's usually in a certain structure to it. This is in descending order. So the most important thing is to not to kill. Then comes the stealing, and then comes the sexual at the very bottom. This is the least important of these uh, ethical uh, aspects. Yeah? What is most destructive, so to speak, comes first, and the least destructive come at the bottom. Uh, um, so that is uh, that is uh, that is that. Uh, and uh, yeah. Okay. So let's move on to speech. 
So here we have the first aspect of speech. They give up lying. They speak the truth and stick to the truth. They're honest and trustworthy and don't trick the world with their words. This pertains to their ethics. Yeah, so lying is bad. No surprise there. And you know that because if you lie you kind of feel a bit dodgy afterwards. And so you speak the truth. You stick to the truth, right? Uh, uh, you're honest and trustworthy. So you will notice here that um, on the one hand you have the outright lying, uh, but then there are many gray zones very often when we speak. Yeah, you may not be outrightly lying, but you may not be telling the full truth either. You may be somewhere grayish kind of in the middle there. Uh, and you will see here that the ideal way of speaking is not just that you don't lie, but that you are really honest. Yeah, you are very forthcoming. Yeah, you're not kind of uh, you, you say things as they are, and even if it kind of reflects badly on yourself, uh, yeah, you kind of you, you feel a bit maybe a bit shameful about something you have done. Okay, more important to be honest and truthful than to kind of uh, cover up my bad deeds so I look good in society. Yeah, and this is one of those actually very uh, to me very beautiful things, to actually admit our mistakes. It is okay to make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes in this world. And when we admit our mistakes, other people usually feel relieved because they don't feel so bad, right? Because they know we are all in this boat together. Everyone makes mistakes. So if we admit to not being perfect, if we admit that we are also you know, liable to make mistakes, other, we're actually helping other people, in a sense, feel more at ease with themselves as well. We're not all acting in this world, pretending to be something that we are not, and that acting and pretending to be something you're not, actually I think overall has a detrimental impact on humanity. Yeah. So we are honest and trustworthy. Yeah, People know, you don't trick the world with your words. People know that they can trust what you say. What comes out of your mouth is largely um, reliable and not really a problem. So again, there's this whole scale, yeah, from the kind of worst kind of lying where you may have some really bad motives, hatred or greed, to the most pure kind of speech where you are uh, speaking the full truth out of, uh, you know, compassion and understanding and all these kind of things. A whole kind of uh, gamut of, uh, uh, you know, of ethical, from the worst ethics to the kind of best, brightest ethics. Now, one of the... The difficulties with, uh, one of the things I haven't really spoken about, which I should mention very briefly as well, about ethical conduct, uh, is that very often people will ask the question, is this good or is it bad? Yeah, I did this, is it good or is it bad? Well, first of all, you can't really tell from the act whether something is good or bad. It has to do with motivation. Yeah, So that's the act itself is possible to tell whether it's good or bad. You can have some idea, but not the full idea. But the other very important point here is that uh, an action is often kind of complex. So it's not as if it is fully good or fully bad. It's somewhere in between. It's like in the gray zone in between. Neither fully black nor fully white, but somewhere in between. And very often we are stuck in life. We have to make choices that are not ideal. Yeah, We have to kind of... Either A or B doesn't look very good to me. Both of them are a bit dodgy, a bit bad. But I, you know, I have to make some choice. And so you make the least bad alternative sometimes, yeah? Because it's actually very difficult sometimes to make choices. And that is what we should often aim for in our life, is the least bad, yeah? In other words, as bright as we possibly can. It's not always, it is actually impossible to always make pure, bright, white kamma, because the only bright, white kamma you can make is when you come out of a jhana state, 
And how many people come out of jhanas all the time? It's not that common, right? So, so no one is going to make pure white kama all the time, it's, it's, unless you're an arahant, of course, or um, you know, someone who attains jhana at will. Very, it's very rare to find that. And so we're all going to make this kind of gray kama, yeah, which is kind of somewhere in between. So what we should aim for, instead of make, aiming for always making good, what we call good karma, we should make, aim to make as good karma as we can. And then we should develop our mind in the good qualities, in the good motivations of compassion, of kindness, of renunciation, of wisdom, all of these good qualities. We should develop those that in the future we can make even better karma because we're coming from an even more pure place in the future. So we do the best we can now with the mind that we have. Yeah? We do the best kind of possibilities. Then we purify our mind further. Through that purification, we can make even better kamma in the future. Yeah? So kamma is, uh, is quite complicated. And the Buddha talks about is in the sutta. He talks about a dark kamma leading to dark results. And that's kind of really evil kamma that takes you straight into the dodgy bad realms. Or the really bright kama, which is like the Brahma Lokas, the kind of highest. And then he talks about dark and bright kama, leading to dark and bright results. And this is kind of the grayish kama, which is kind of uh, more complex. And there's a the last kind of kama, the neither dark nor bright kama, that leads to neither dark nor bright results. But that is for another time. So please tune in, listen, and we'll <laughs> see what happens in the future here. That is kind of the enlightenment kamma, just to give you a preview. Yeah. So this is the idea of lying. Yeah? And again, remember that at the root of all of this is intention. There may be certain cases where lying might be acceptable if you're coming from compassion. Generally speaking, it's a dangerous thing. You should avoid it. But again, there may be some extreme situations where it may be acceptable. This is where you're coming from is the most important thing. Yeah. So now you have some idea why we have rules. Yeah? The reason why, on the one hand, you can, uh, um, you can basically guide your whole life through these kind of basic ideas of morality, look at your motivation, where are you coming from, what is your intention. Uh, if you have a great clarity of mind, you can guide everything you do through that. Uh, but the problem is that very, sometimes in life we get confused. Uh, Sometimes you forget what is important. Yeah? We forget what matters and we kind of get really confused. Then it's very handy to have kind of five clear rules of what to do. Okay, don't lie. Okay, don't lie. Don't lie. Okay. Or at least I can remember that much. My mind state, I don't really understand my mind state at the moment. It is a bit blurry, a bit uncertain. So forget about trying to understand my motivation. Let's just stick with not lying. A lot of the time, that is the right way because it can be hard to really understand what is going on. And very commonly for human beings, there's going to be some delusion there which guides you in the wrong way and makes it difficult for you to understand what is happening here. So, um, yes. So anything about lying here? Yeah. Sorry, this is not about, not about lying, but uh, <laughs> the okay. actions, bodily actions, any reason why Buddha left out the uh, taking intoxicants at this stage? Um, as a, this is for the monastic path, and we have very, quite clear rules about not drinking alcohol uh, already. Uh, um, I think the reason is because, remember, this is about ethics, yeah? And drinking alcohol in itself is not ethically wrong. Yeah? 
yeah, in itself with the consequence of drinking alcohol, which is the real problem. Huh? And so because this is about ethics, uh, it is not about kind of rules of living that support ethics, but it's about ethics itself. Huh? So that, I think, is the main reason. Huh? So if you look at the uh, fifth precept, it always talks about alcohol that leads to uh, a heedlessness, right? Uh, and the heedlessness, of course, means that you don't really act appropriately anymore. Huh? But of course, alcohol in itself does have negative consequences as well. I mean, you get deluded. Uh, you know, you have all of these kind of things that kind of distort the mind. In the long run, they can have very, very negative consequences. Uh, but they are more on the level of creating delusion and creating problems rather than actually being itself a negative actor. Yeah. Sure. I've seen it written that um, not to give up lying but to give up wrong speech mm. and I always took that to include harmful speech, causing harm with your speech yep. because like giving away a secret it mm. might be true but it's actually not right to give it away and Absolutely, yeah. insults yeah. might be true but yeah. they can be very <laughs> hurtful making the most of somebody's failures yeah. Yeah, okay. you know all that yeah, yeah. is that not covered here? It is covered. We'll see, coming to it in a second, actually. It's coming up now. So just uh, so thank you for the preview of what's coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, this, this is an insult, but it's true. So I'm going to tell you to your face. I, I, that's, uh, that's, yeah, so I know what you mean there. Please, Eddie. Two things, Ajahn Bruni. Yeah. First thing is on lying. Mm -hmm. After that, you know, the, the previous one on sex, can I say something too? Not, yeah. The lying, you know, as I see it, lying, two aspects, you know. Mm. One, if you lie with intention to cheat or to harm or mm. hurt people, that, that is bad, you know. The other lying is like, a, say for example, you're, you're saying things, oh, I can't attend your party, you know, okay. We can say, oh, I don't, I can't attend your party because I don't feel like going. That's too much, I think. I can't because, mm. oh, I've got uh, my, my brother's, uh, you know. Mm. party going on, just to make it more subtle. You know? Mm. Mm. I know it's still lying, but maybe the karma is less. Mm. Absolutely. You see what I mean? Yeah. That, that was kind of what I was, was saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it depends on your motivation and intention, exactly. Yeah, the intention. Yeah, yep. yeah yep. It, it, based on the intention. Yep. The yep. other one, the prevent on sex, you know, okay? So, yeah. Mm. You know, sex is very powerful, you know, mm. okay? To tell people no sex, they'll go cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, it's. A, I mean, for monks, you already maybe from previous lives condition, you you can yeah. do that. Okay, yeah. So yeah. the thing is, the thing is, yeah. the, the the sexual part. This thing is, mm. let them experience. You no, know, the the you know, sex is not all that great. You know, mm. first thing there's the mm. S, a lot of STDs going on, mm. sexual transmit. Okay, mm. and then then the 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 attach. How do I say the. You know, associating people brings you're you're dealing with another person. You know, that brings suffering too. You know. And also the last part, the L-U-S-T, you know. The last is not permanent, you know. After a short while, it goes off too, you know. Mm -hmm. So to get that, that, that little mm -hmm. thrill, you know, the orgasm, all the, uh, in, in, uh, yeah. and then you have to go through a lot of problems too. Mm -hmm. So, but you can't tell the person, you let the person experience it, maybe the middle way and slowly cut down. Mm -hmm. What do you think? <laughs> uh, yes, usually it's good to be gradual. You can't, you know, the idea in Buddhism is that the, uh, your path should, uh, should kind of gradually develop itself. It shouldn't be too, much, shouldn't be too forceful. Uh, mm. And if usually if you have to use force, it's usually counterproductive and you're mm. going to have a lot of suffering and problems as a consequence. Uh, mm. So it should be quite natural. I agree with you. But yeah. remember that uh, 
you know, all of these things depend on your perceptions. And you can actually change your attitude to these things in part by perceiving the world differently. Mm -hmm. What is important to you will depend on your perceptions. Mm -hmm. So how you look at the world, how you look at people, all of these things will feed back into, you know, precisely this kind of, uh, this kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so I, but there's nothing wrong with sex. Sex is not mm -hmm. considered immoral as such mm -hmm. in Buddhism. And, or if it is immoral, it's only tiny. I mean, it's better not to, ideally, if you can have good deep meditation instead, it's better. It's considered a higher kind of morality. But sexuality is not immoral in Buddhism. And that's why one of the reasons I don't really like the word vulgar, because vulgar to me sounds like almost you're making it into something bad. And people have enough complexes in this area as they do. We don't need to add to that. Uh, um, but uh, it's not really bad, and so don't, mm. don't, you know, I would say to people, that, that's not, don't worry too much about these mm. kind of things. Uh, yes, we are trying to achieve something higher, but don't force it, don't, don't mm. make, don't try, you know, don't use too much willpower because it will be counterproductive. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Okay. All right, so we have, uh, don't have all that much Time left because I don't want to carry on for too long. Is any, any kind of last questions for the few minutes? I, um, let me just give. You, I'll give you a preview, Sue, because I think you know this already. But there's four kinds of wrong speech, yeah, and, man, and many of these other kinds will be covered. Uh, uh, what you're talking about will be covered by these other kinds. So let me just show you what they are very briefly. So we have the speaking the truth, and we have giving up divisive speech, right? Uh, the other bit is where you kind of say something bad to someone, uh, and then they kind of you tell this, uh, about someone else, and they kind of they feel divided from each other because they hear negative things about each other. That's kind of divisive speech, and considered quite bad. It's a second kind of second thing after lying here. And then we come to the other one you were talking about more directly. I'm not gonna I'm gonna come back to this later on. It's harsh speech. Yeah, it's where you talk using harsh words and uh, making people feel. Uh, People feel bad because of that. And then the last kind of wrong speech is, uh, it says here, giving up talking nonsense. And the Pali word here is sampapalapa. That sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? Sampapalapa. It really means like frivolous. It doesn't really mean nonsense as such. It means like frivolous speech, meaningless speech. Speech is, which is kind of about all kind of irrelevant matters. Sampapalapa. Palapa means to speak. And sampa. Uh, I, it was funny because I was in, uh, I mentioned this before, but it's kind of a nice, small little, nice little story. I'm actually going off to Indonesia on Wednesday, so this is kind of a preview for me, a reminder of Indonesia. And we're talking, there was some of this kind of big, uh, what they call Dhamma talk show, they call them. Yeah, and there's an audience there, and they kind of, you're interviewed, and we're talking about uh, wrong speech. And uh, I say, oh yeah, that is, it's called Sampa Palapa, and everyone was laughing yeah, because Sampa. In Indonesian, Indonesian is very heavily influenced by Sanskrit, lots of Sanskrit words. Sampa means rubbish. Yeah? So it was like the, the rubbish bin was over there. That was the Sampa bin yeah, over, over there. <laughs> the Sampa Palapa is like rubbish talk, almost quite literally. Yeah? And so this is what this uh, talking about giving up nonsense or frivolous speech or, or rubbish speech is about. Uh, so I think most of the things that you meant uh, there are probably included in these things. Uh, and if they are not included in these things, because when you categorize things, some things are always going to be excluded from the categories. Uh, anytime you're kind of doing something which feels a bit dodgy, uh, don't do it. Uh, that's kind of the bottom line. Uh, yeah. Okay, everyone, any last comments or questions uh, before we call it a day? Yeah.
Do we have anything? Oh, I forgot about people outside of the uh, the center. That's true. We usually bring that in as well. Completely forgotten about that. Uh. So, is there any anyone from outside? Let's let's take the ones from outside first of all, Eddie. Yeah, because it, we're going to take too long. Yeah. yeah. Okay, two questions. Okay, good, thank you. All right, so um, so here we are. So these are the two questions from outside. So the first one is, a monk told a lie and said it was for the practitioner's own good. The practitioner found out the truth after 20 years. What are your thoughts, Ajahn? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this is just like, making an excuse for your lying, yeah? I'm lying for your own good, uh, and uh, it's not kind of the right way of doing things. Uh, I mean, sometimes there may be a reason for lying, you know, if, if someone really is going to get hurt if you tell the truth, then you don't have to tell the truth. You don't really have to lie either. You can just say, this is not the right time to talk about this, or, or whatever. I mean, you don't always, you know, usually you don't have to lie. Maybe in some extreme situations you have, but it's very, very rare. So I would say that uh, if the monk did this, uh, um, maybe he had some fairly good reasons so it wasn't so bad, uh, but it sounds to me like he probably, sh he probably shouldn't have done it. Uh. Okay, next one. Is pure intention which leads to good ethical behavior necessarily free of ego? Uh, um, I think uh, the, uh, to be really, really pure... Uh, it should probably be free of ego. Uh, yeah? As long as there is an ego there, there will be a degree of self-interest uh, and it will not be a really pure act. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, you, you're doing it for you know, the benefit of someone else. Uh, uh, if you fully do it for the benefit of the, someone else, the ego should really be gone because the ego will say, okay, it is for me, I'm doing it also for myself or whatever. Uh, so I think the less ego there is, uh, the more pure the action is going to be here. Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, am I really being uh, fully generous? Uh, you know, when I, when I give something, I know it is going to be good for me as well. So it's kind of, isn't it kind of greedy because I know it's going to be good for me here? That is the misunderstanding of the idea of greed. The idea of greed is like a feeling. Yeah, you feel, yeah, this is, I'm, this is for me. It's like a, you know, it's, it's this kind of limited feeling here. But if you're truly generous to someone, you don't have that kind of greed there anymore. That's completely gone from your mind. You may know that it is good for you, but that knowledge is very different from greed. Yeah, it's two very different things. Knowledge is one thing. Another thing is the feeling of, yeah, this is for me, and a greedy kind of accumulation of something. Yeah. So it is not selfish to act uh, you know, act of generosity, act with kindness, even if you know it is good for yourself. Uh, uh, because selfishness is a particular kind of feeling, a particular kind of limitation of the mind. Uh. All right, everyone. So, uh, nice to see you all there. And uh, let us uh, just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha to finish off. Uh. <laughs>